So here we go. Let's dig into our Bible study this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts. It's in the New Testament. Who wrote Acts? All right, Luke. Okay, no one said Paul. Good job. <laughs> Luke. Luke, who also wrote another book of the New Testament. Do you know what other book he wrote? <laughs> you are on it today. <laughs> Luke, yeah, he wrote two books. He was a physician, but also a historian. And uh, most people believe he wrote Acts as a kind of a contracted, uh, that there was a wealthy man named Theophilus who was curious as to the authenticity of the claims about Christianity and that he actually paid Luke to write a firsthand account to go do all the investigation and kind of the investigation discovery process and go through and interview all the eyewitnesses who were living at the time and extract as much information as he could about the birth of the church, kind of taking, uh, taking the period of history that began at the resurrection of Christ, included his ascension, and then right through up to the birth of the church in Jerusalem and how it started to spread throughout the world. So that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 20. It's an interesting passage that we're at. Let me just give you the thumbnail. We've got to put on our first century uh, hearing aids and our first century eyes for just a moment. It's a story of an account of Paul making a farewell address to the leaders of the church from Ephesus. Now, he's not at Ephesus geographically when this takes place. He was on a boat that had a stopover, had a short layover in a specific port city that was about 30 miles away from Ephesus. But Paul knew in his mind he was headed towards Rome, and in his mind he knew he was going to Rome and he was going to die there. And before he went to Rome, he wanted to face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, say goodbye to people who are near and dear to his heart. So when he was stopped over in this port city, he sent word through a messenger to the church board, the church leaders from Ephesus, and asked if they would come see him off before that he left. So he's hanging out there in the port city, you can imagine. It would take a couple days to get someone 30 miles to Ephesus and then have those leaders respond. And they responded and they came. Now, why was Ephesus, why Ephesus, of all the people he could have sent to, of all the New Testament cities outside of Jerusalem, I probably studied the most about Ephesus. And I have to be careful because I could talk to you about all the archaeology and the history and everything about that city and we'd run out of time this morning. But here's a little bit of an idea so you can understand what Ephesus was. Ephesus was the fourth largest by population city in the Roman Empire. At that time, that was 200,000 people. So if you added the 30,000 people that live in Parkville, the 28,000 people that live in Perry Hall, the 11,000 people who live in White Marsh, you added those three numbers together and triple it, you come up to the size of Ephesus. Okay? Ephesus was well known throughout the Roman Empire for, for really two things. The, the second most important thing they were known for is their 25,000-seat outdoor Colosseum-style theater with acoustics so amazing that 25,000 people could sit in those seats and listen to a play and hear every word. They'd also have gladiators fight, and there was a lot of entertainment. But the main thing Ephesus was known for and really drove all of its commerce was tourism built around. They were home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the Temple of Artemis. This thing was amazing. It was 108,000 square feet, six stories high, made out of 150,000 tons of hand-hewn gray marble that they cut out of gray marble that was eight miles away from the city and rolled by hand or drugged by hand eight miles into the city to build this temple. Just think of the work that it took to build this temple. And it was... 
the engineering I could talk to you about for another 20 minutes, but I won't. But this is what drew people to Ephesus. It was this idol worship, this, this pleasurable idol, and uh, the silver trade was huge. So right around the, 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 this temple to Artemis, you had the main commerce of the city, which was selling silver uh, souvenirs and trinkets made in the image of Artemis. There were no Christians here. The gospel had not gotten here. But Paul, if you know anything about him, was drawn to be an urban evangelist. He was drawn to the cities. He didn't necessarily go to all the rural areas or into the hills or the mountains. He went where the people were. So we know that God drew Paul to Ephesus because of the population center. And this is what he walked into. Archaeologists have showed us that right around that temple and in the city square, and it was a very advanced city, they had an aqueduct system that carried fresh water to them into the cistern that they actually had running waters in their houses in Ephesus. Some of the houses had a primitive form of air conditioning. That's how advanced they were. They would have these, I'm getting way off track, but I mean they had these cool walls that they would run. They had the ability to flow water down the walls and actually cool their homes because of the wealth. That's what I'm driving at. There's a lot of wealth there all connected to the silver trade also they were well known for their brothels that were all on the main street so this is what people were coming to town for i say that for a reason we know how effective paul was he's the first christian in a few years later of course they run him out of town why did they run him out of town because he was so effective in winning people for christ that it began to hurt the economy of the city because as people turned away from artemis They turned away from the silver trade. They turned away from the brothels. The street vendors weren't selling as much and their economy was hurting. And if you read through the entire story, you'll actually remember that in that 25,000 seat theater, an upset silversmith gathered the the whole city together and incited a riot to throw Paul out of there because evangelism and Christianity was a threat to their economy. And they ran Paul out of town because he was so effective in leading people to Christ one at a time and discipling them and raising them up and planted a church that Christianity began to undo everything wrong with the city. And history shows us that even after this story, 30 years, beginning 30 years after Paul left Ephesus, after they ran him out, the church continued to grow and continued to grow such that the temple fell into ruins and the whole trade toppled. Because the city turned to Christ. Amazing story. So when Paul calls for these leaders, this is the people he's calling. People he won to Jesus personally. People that he personally disciples and raised them up to be the pastors and the Sunday school teachers and the deacons and the welcome team for the church at Ephesus. He knows he's never going to see them again. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation like that that didn't involve you know, it didn't involve death. It's just an odd conversation when you know you're never going to see somebody again, not because, of, not because they're going to die, but because you're going to die. So the, what's interesting about this story, I want you to keep in mind the context. These are the last things he gets to say to people he loves. And this is what he says. Acts chapter 20, we're going to read verse 25, and then we'll skip down to verse 32. And I'll read it for you this morning because for just sake of time, I'll make sure that we, we get where we need to go today. He says this, and now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. And down in verse 32. This is the last thing he says, the last two paragraphs he says to these people. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. I have never coveted anyone's, this is interesting now, right? Silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. 
and I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this is interesting. He says really two things. He says two things to the Ephesian leaders here. One of them is not at all a surprise. The other one is. Really, the first thing he says to them is, we're not to the big idea yet, so we'll get to that in just a moment. But the first thing he says to them is, is, remember, I entrust you to, to God and to the word of grace, to the message of grace, to the gospel of grace. I want you to never forget that you are sinners saved by grace and grace alone. I want you to remember the gospel of grace. I want you to live it out. I want you to think about it. I want you to get a more full understanding of the gospel every single day of your life. And as you understand the gospel more, I want you to live it out. And that's not really a shock or a surprise. I would expect him to say something about the gospel. So on the one hand, he's saying, I want you to really, really, really live out the gospel. And the second thing, though, I think is kind of a surprise. The second thing he says to them is that I also want you to remember the example I set while I lived with you, how my life was a life poured out in acts of radical generosity to other people. I worked hard with my own hands, and out of my own income, I took care of not only my own needs, but I radically was able to give away generously to other people, and you ought to follow my example. So the two things he says... Remember the gospel, and second, live radical lives of giving away your income generously. Now, are these two separate ideas to Paul? Are these two totally different things that the gospel and living a life of generosity, does he say, you know, on the one hand, I want you to remember the gospel, and then, oh, by the way, in a completely different subject, I want you to be generous. No, he sees them as closely, closely connected. And so important that it's the last two sentences he says to these people. What's he really, really saying? Well, here's what he's saying. This is the big idea. When you truly believe you have an eternal inheritance, you can be radically generous with your earthly inheritance. What he's saying to them is if you'll remember the gospel of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, if you will remember that if you are in Christ, you have an unshakable heavenly inheritance waiting for you. If you really remember that, it will liberate your soul from greed and materialism and free your finances up to be radically generous with your earthly inheritance. If you knew you stood to inherit $100 million in 10 years, how would you treat your finances differently today? Wouldn't be good for all of us. But if you knew that you knew that you knew you had a rock-solid, iron-clad, massive inheritance coming your way. At the very least, I promise you, you'd treat your budget right now much different. What Paul is saying is that as a Christian, if you truly believe that you have a heavenly inheritance waiting for you, then you can be liberated to be radically generous with your earthly inheritance. So really what I'm going to look at this morning is just I want to look at giving, I want to look at greed, and I want to look at grace. Number one, it's kind of going backwards. We'll start at the end of the passage and move backwards, okay? Giving contains, here's what Paul is saying. This is not my statement. This is what Paul is saying. I have to defend this one. 
Giving contains power to heal the world. Okay, I'm not going to like sing Hands Across America or, you know, all these other, you know, We Are the World and all those other, kind of, you know, the songs back from the 80s when I was young and had hair and all that other good stuff that goes along with it. But Paul's making a radical statement here. Now, please don't, giving is not the only way the world gets healed. But Paul makes a very interesting case here in verse 35. And verse 35 is interesting. It's the only real statement of Jesus in the New Testament that's not in the Gospels. You have the interaction with Paul on the road to Damascus, and you have this one. He's quoting Jesus, but he's quoting him from something that he knew that Jesus said that wasn't recorded in the Gospels. So uh, it's quite interesting. What he says is, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. How many of you have ever heard that statement before? It's more blessed to give than to receive. This statement, again, we've got to put on our first century ears. Because we use the word blessed today, we have really devalued what that means. We've simplified the definition, not incorrectly, but the point where we've watered it down and it's lost some of it. Wait, uh, the closest synonym I hear us use today for blessed, if you had to pick a word for it, what would you use? Happy. Okay. And that's not entirely inaccurate. But you can say blessed about a lot of things. And in the church world, blessed usually means material prosperity. Right? I'm blessed, God's blessed me with this, and he's blessed me with the, you know, you hear on TV, God's blessed me with the ability to score a lot of touchdowns, God's blessed me with the ability to, to do this or do that. And that's not necessarily wrong, but about 35 of the verses in the New Testament about blessedness has nothing to do with material prosperity. The word blessed, actually, if you go back to the original word and you, and you pull it apart, it means two things next to each other. The part that we get happy from means blessed actually means to be completely and fully satisfied. To be completely and fully satisfied. The second half of it, and basically the Old Testament connotation of blessedness means in the face of the presence of God. So if you put those things together, blessedness, when Paul is saying this, when Jesus said it, when we read it in the Old Testament, blessedness means to be completely and fully satisfied by being in the face of the presence of God. If you think about it, there's only one time in all of history that that was the condition experienced by people. Way back in the Garden of Eden. They were fully, completely satisfied because they were in the uninterrupted presence in the face of God. Their bodies were perfect. Their relationship with God was perfect. Their relationship with each other was perfect. They were blessed. That's truly blessedness. But what happened? When we rebelled, when we sinned, we lost the blessedness. There's now a separation in our relationship with God. Our bodies aren't perfect anymore. Our bodies are susceptible to sin and to disease. We fight with each other. Our relationships, turn on the news, (laughs) relationships are fractured. We don't live in that blessedness anymore. Now, the great promise of Scripture is that our great hope is that we're going to return in heaven to blessedness again. Complete, full satisfaction, lacking nothing, not feeling like there's anything missing from life. Why is it that all human beings feel like, if I can only get this, have that, look this way, I'll be full, complete. And then when you get a taste of it, it just doesn't satisfy you. You want more. Here's what Paul is saying that Jesus is saying. 
When you're blessed, you recover a little bit of what was lost in the fall. Blessedness means there's a little bit more joy, a little bit more completeness, a little bit more happiness that's moving you back in the direction of what we lost in the fall. And so here's what he's really saying. Radical generosity releases blessedness into the world around us. And in so doing, it begins to heal the brokenness of the world and moves us back closer into the direction of being fully complete in the presence of God. Giving is not the only way that we heal the world, but radical, generous giving has the healing power to heal people. Do you know how many lives were radically impacted by you bringing school supplies to pack to school? Some of us were there. Cheryl Jouse and Jen Wagner and Kim Ballantyne and myself and Havila and Pastor James and George Ballantyne. I wish you could have stood at the table and heard some of the things that people said. People in tears. People thanking God. People just moved and encouraged and filled with hope because you were radically generous above and beyond what you had to do and brought school supplies or brought money. And did, did it make everybody come to know Jesus? No, but you know what? Their day was a little bit different because of what you did. There's a sense of feeling a little bit more complete, a little bit more full, a little bit more satisfied. And what Paul is saying is there is more blessedness, more healing capacity in giving than there is in receiving. And so he wants us to know that giving, radical giving of our income, Paul says, I'm the example. When I, went to, when I came to you to Ephesus, he says, I didn't ask you to pay me a salary to come and tell you the gospel. I took a second job, and I made tents or whatever it is that he did, and I earned enough money, but I didn't consider myself uh, somebody who was going to be a collector of things or covetous or greedy. I used that money to take care of my own needs and also give it away generously. And I want you to remember my example. So why aren't we healing the world? Point two, greed is the hidden power that holds us back from giving. This is it. Paul uses the word covetousness. We don't really use that word much, but it's greed. It's materialism or it's ultra frugality because some of us are hung up on spending and some of us are hung up on saving and it's equally difficult depending on how you're bent. Some of us can't give like we should be able to give or like we'd like to be able to give because we have so many material things that, that, that we crave and they're intention. Some of us don't give the way we should give because we save and we squirrel away everything. And we're trying to control our world by having enough money stored up that we're impervious to everything. And both of those things were, are at war with each other, keep us from giving. Here's what Paul says. How was Paul able to do this? He says, I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine gold, fine clothes. He's saying, I could give because I wasn't greedy. I could give generously because I didn't have to fight the battle of materialism. So Paul's example is this. Work hard, he says this, work hard so you can take care of your needs. That's important. He doesn't say generosity equals not taking care of your needs and giving it away to somebody else. That's not what generosity is. That's reckless. Okay? It says take care of your needs. It doesn't say all your needs and all you want. Take care of your needs and the needs of others. In short, work hard so you can be radically generous. How was Paul able to live with this, this way? He avoided covetousness, or a word we use more commonly today, greed. Right, I'll speed through this, but I have to say this. 
There's a lot of sins I could talk about this morning that you would easily recognize if it was you or not. If I talked about lust, you'd be like, that's either not my problem or that's definitely my problem. If I talk about gossip, it's a little more murky. Some of us think that gossip is venting or some of us think that gossip is helping. You know, uh, some of us think gossip's just fun. Uh, but you usually know that that's your problem. If I talked about adultery, hopefully that's pretty obvious to you, right? Nobody thinks greed is their problem. That's why Jesus has to say, watch out for it all the time. Jesus talks about greed 10 to 20 times more than any other sin. Why? Because nobody thought it was their problem. Nobody thought, and nobody really thinks, I can't, I, I don't know that I've ever, I think one time in my life, one time I can remember an individual came to me and confessed that they, they had a problem with greed. But of all the things that I've heard people confess to me and ask for prayer and help to overcoming, greed is usually not one of them because none of us think we deal with it. But if Jesus speaks about it 10 to 20 times more than any other sin, we should probably start with a working hypothesis that it may be a problem for us. Well, Pastor, are you talking about money? Well, kind of. Jesus never says money is an idol. It could be. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, watch out for money. What does Jesus say? Show me your treasure, and I'll show you your heart. So he doesn't say money is an idol, but here's what he says. Money is the perfect way to find out what your idols truly are. Follow where your money goes, and it'll show you what, what is really important, where your real security is, where your real salvation lies. <laughs> Being very... Uh, does your value rest in what Jesus thinks of you and how much he loves you or in what God thinks of us or what Christ thinks of us? Does your value rest in, 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 in how you appear and how you look and how you dress and what you have? Or does it rest in who God thinks you are in Christ? The truth is, for a lot of us, it's both, and those two things fight. They fight. Um, for me personally, I had to think about this. Because um, here's really the statement. Those things which you find it effortless to spend money on, those are the things that can become idols to us. The things that you find no problem spending money on. It's effortless. It just leaps out of your pocket. Those are the things where the fight comes in. And I had to think about this long and hard with me because I have a hard time spending money on anything. I'm on the, my problem is that I want to, because of the way that I grew up and a lot of other things that if I went into detail, I have to pay you all a copay for listening to me, Right? But because of the way that I was raised and because of situations in my life, I'm always scared that something's going to happen and I'm, you know, I'm going to lose my job or, I, you know, the, the sky's going to fall in or something's going to, or a tree's going to come through my house and I'm not going to have enough money to pay for it. And so I'm always trying to control my fear by thinking that there's a, a certain amount of money, if I can put it away, I'm going to be safe. So it's really easy for me to siphon a few dollars off into a savings account and make like a quarter of a percent of interest on it. But it's hard for me to spend money. I don't spend a lot of money on cars, as you can tell. My cars are 10 years old, about 200,000 miles apiece, and they need to keep running. It's no secret I don't spend a lot of money on shampoo, conditioner. <laughs> don't spend a, money, a lot of money on clothes, uh, as you can, you can tell. Um, the reason is because here's what I find it effortless to spend money on. I find it effortless to spend money on my wife and my son. And you don't have to say, oh, there's a problem with that. Is because a lot of my identity, if I'm real honest, is about appearing to be a good husband and a good dad. And unfortunately, in my mind, a lot of that translates into the money that I spend on them. 
I'm not, and we don't have a lot of expensive things. Most of our furniture could be put together with an Allen wrench, okay? Um, you know, we're, if we can find it after this whole mess is done with Service Master, if we can find it, a big bag of Ikea bolts and things, we'll have to put everything back together with. But it, they don't ask, for, well, my son asks for a lot. My wife asks for next to nothing. If I ever discover that there's something, some material want in her life, and it's usually very reasonable, I will do anything to make sure she has it. She doesn't ask for a lot. But if she, you know, she needs clothes or if she wants a piece of jewelry or she wants things, you know, um, I find it effortless to spend money on that. Or if they want to have an experience, if they want to go to a this event or a that event, or my son wants to go to the science center or a baseball game or something, I find it effortless to spend money on those things. Um, in fact, I will spend money on that before I spend money on myself. It's just, the, it's just my, it's not right or wrong. It's just how I'm wired. The problem is also my major insecurity in life is feeling like I don't appear as a good husband or I don't appear as a good dad. And so a lot of times that spending is a result of some of this tension in my own heart to appear as though I'm a good husband or a good provider or a good dad by taking care of my family. And you would say, well, pastor, shouldn't your identity be rooted in who Christ thinks you are? Yes. Shouldn't my identity be rooted in who, who God thinks of me? Yes. But I have this other part of me and those two things fight. And the reason I know they fight is because I still find it so effortless to give my money away for things that I know are going to make my wife and my son happy. Now, do I like to give my money away generously? Yes. Do you and your wife give the first fruits? Yes. We give 10%. Next year, we're upping that percentage again. And we give every month to missions. And we give to the building fund. And we made a commitment that any time that we receive a special offering here, we're going to participate. And we give and we give and we give. And sometimes it feels great and sometimes it's an effort. But there are certain things that are effortless. And it shows that that battle still takes place. It's, 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 it's a form of greed. There's another form of greed that doesn't manifest in spending. It manifests in being ultra frugal. We don't spend money on anything. And generosity is hard because we want to squirrel it all away. We want to get to a certain number or a certain place. And that's not unwise. But sometimes, I will tell you this in my own life. It used to be, man, if I just had $500 in my savings account, that will change my life. This was right out of college. I'm like, man, if I could get $500 in my savings account, I'm set. You realize that that number on this side, you know, 20 years later, I'm like, $500 won't really fix much of anything. It won't fix the Keurig on my refrigerator. It won't, you know, it won't fix. <laughs> but here's what I found. The more you have, it doesn't make you any more secure, really. The more you have, the harder it is to part with. Proverbs talks about that. So no matter where you land on this, the fact that Paul shows is that there is a battle. So, and the thing is, if you can't defeat the power of the second, you'll never release the power of the first. If you can't ever defeat the power of greed, you'll never ever, ever, ever really be able to release the healing power of generosity. Okay? So how do we do that? Point three. How do we do that? How do we change? Grace. Grace. Grace will change you. It will change me. Grace breaks the power of greed and it releases the power of giving. Paul says it first. I entrust you to God in the message of his grace. He's giving them the little clue as to how he was able to break the power of greed. Now, when we talk about how do you as a pastor, how do you as a leader inspire people to be generous, we generally use one of three tactics. We work on the brain, we work on the will, or we work on people's we work on people's heartstrings, the emotions. We work on the brain. You know, ten dollars will feed X amount of kids, and a hundred dollars will feed X amount of kids. 
or it'll turn into this many souls. Just run the numbers and it'll show you why generosity is good. And some of us are wired that way and that appeals to us. Work on the brain. Others of us don't care about that. Tell me the stories. Tell me the stories of the sad little kid or the, or the this story or the that story. And, you know, you get a missionary who comes up and tells you a really compelling story. And that works on our emotions. And we tell you a story about the little kids back there in the nursery who, you know, we want to have more people to rock babies. And some people come up crying, I want to rock babies and I want to do that. You know, well, and that's, that's awesome. Can you pass a background check? You know, we have to ask those questions first. You know, um, and we work on people's emotions. We think that's the way. Just tell the right story, pastor, and the money will come in for the building. You know, or you just tell people that if we, you know, if we have this many square feet, we can grow by this percentage and your dollar will actually reach this many souls. Work on... Sometimes we just work on the will. <laughs> be generous or God will get you. You best be generous. We dealt with that last week. God doesn't command generosity. Generosity is a choice, not a command. Okay? The moment you command it, it loses some of its power. Something you do with free will that's above and beyond the expectations. Paul doesn't go down any of those three trails. He doesn't deal with their, their will. He doesn't deal with their emotions. He doesn't deal with uh, the third thing that just jumped out of my mind, the other part of it. But he does deal with their hearts. And he says, remember grace. Some of you probably learned a definition in Sunday school for grace. I said it earlier. It's an acronym, G-R-A-C-E. Do you remember what it is? God's riches at Christ's expense. What it means is you and I inherited and stand to inherit the riches of God, not because we did anything, but because who? Christ did it. Listen. Every other treasure, we sang about treasures this morning. Every other treasure but Jesus will run your life. It'll demand you die for it. Every other treasure but Jesus will make you feel panicked if you don't have it. And it will enslave you. Because you've got to have it. I have got to have the best clothes. I have got to look a certain way. I've got to advance to this point in my career. I've got to make this amount of money. I've got to have a house that's this size. I've got to have a bathroom with this kind of tile. I've got to have, and you've got to have it, and you're panicked when you don't, and it will enslave you. Every other treasure will demand you die for it. Jesus is the only treasure that died for you. Jesus is the only treasure that paid to have you. Every other treasure but Jesus will demand you pay to have it. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? He was rich. He had it all. He had all of heaven. He was upholding it all with the glory of his power. He had the best position. He had the most wealth. He had everything. So why did he pay all that and come? There was one treasure he didn't have. Us. And if he wouldn't have become a little baby born in a manger, and if he wouldn't have lived a sinless life, and if he wouldn't have been massacred on a cross, and on the cross you realize he lost heaven, he lost his father, he was essentially sent to hell, 1 Corinthians 15. If he wouldn't have lost it all, he could never have purchased you. And what did we say a treasure is? It's something you're willing to pay the ultimate price for. We are his treasure. 
And the more that I see that I am his treasure, it melts my heart and it makes him my treasure. And the more that he becomes my treasure, these other nice things we talked about, they're just that. They're just nice things. And now I'm free. Now I'm free because I have treasure. And now I am free to live a radically generous life that's not bent on emotions, that's not bent on my will, that's not bent on statistics or uh, guilt. The more you see that Jesus Christ considers you his treasure and that he died and paid everything to have you, the more you see that, that is the message of grace. That is, that is you getting God's riches at Christ's expense. The more that you can understand that reality, it will melt your heart. It will transform you. He will become your highest treasure, not your career, because your career will never die for you. Not your IRA or your retirement account. It'll never die for you. Those things are not evil. But anything that occupies the treasured space in your heart that belongs uniquely to Christ becomes an idol. And a lot of times we take things that are not intended to be evil and we put them in a space that God belongs in. And we serve it. And we worship it. And we pray about it. And we beg God for it. We feel like we are in complete incompleteness until we have those things. And then when we get those things, we feel like we're blessed. Blessedness is being fully complete and satisfied in the face of the presence of God. And through radical generosity, think of what would happen in this community if churches all over this community got consumed with an understanding of their heavenly inheritance and began to live radically generous lives. Then we don't have to worry about the social security system failing. <laughs> then we don't have to worry about hungry then we don't have to worry about people going with needs unmet or some new program to come along to finance those things. The church could step up and fill so many of the gaps that government was never intended but that the church was assigned to do to take care of widows and orphans, to feed the hungry, to clothe the needy, to minister to the sick, not just with prayers and with uh, spiritual ministry, that's a huge part of it, but with tangible expressions through our hard work and our ability to not live lives controlled by greedy and materialism and accumulation but by taking care of our needs and having enough left over to give away generously. But you'll never get there unless grace has filled your heart because grace is that power from God to defeat the hold that greed has over generosity. Let's go to him this morning and let's invite his grace to melt our hearts. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come. I hope this morning there are some of you that have listened to this message here or you're listening to it on the podcast, he would say, I hope. You say, someone invited me here or I've been here a few times or I happen to just find you this morning and I, I don't have a relationship with Jesus the way you just described. I don't even understand all of the theology and the information you presented today. I'm not a Bible scholar. But I'm feeling something deep in my gut right now. My heart's pounding real fast. I, I want to have a relationship with a God who treasures me like that. How do I do that? You confess with your mouth that you believe that Jesus is really the Lord. 
and you believe in your heart that what the Bible says about him is true, that he, he rose from the dead and he's alive today, and you'll be saved. Saved means that you're accepted in the fullness of God through Jesus Christ. It means that you have a relationship with God, that it's a restored relationship. If you want to make that decision this morning, I w- I'd love to make it for you. That's not how it works. You get the privilege of saying yes or saying no to Jesus. But I remember when I, w- when I prayed this prayer for the first time in my life. I'm going to lead you in this prayer this morning. So if what I just described is you and you want to make a, a right relationship with Jesus today, here's the prayer I want to lead you in. You can pray it right along with me, right at your seat. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you lived a sinless life in life. I believe you died on the cross in my place. I believe you're the son of God, but I don't believe you're dead. I do believe you came back to life, just like the Bible says. I believe you're alive right now, and I believe I need you. Thank you for offering to forgive me for my sins. I take you up on that. Today, I step off of the throne of my life And I invite you to sit on that throne. Now you're the king. I'm your servant. Thank you that I now stand to inherit all the riches of heaven. Melt my heart with grace so that I can radically and generously pour my life out to help heal this world and meet needs of people who need, who need you in their life. In your name I pray, amen.